Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Um, hey, if you want to, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Uh, we're starting a new series here this morning, and honestly, this morning's message is just going to be an intro message about the book of Daniel. We're going to spend 11 weeks in the book of Daniel. So if you're wondering, like, where are we going to be? We're going to be in the book of Daniel. How long are we going to be there? 11 weeks. It's like, that's close to three months. I mean, basically, we're going to land this series on Daniel, and we're going to pick up Advent. We're going to pick up Christmas. And um, really, really excited about that because hopefully what we're going to wake up to over the next 11 weeks is that there is maybe no book in the Bible as culturally relevant to who we are and where we are as a people of God living in modern America than the book of Daniel. And um, so really, really excited about that. And uh, today, I just want to give you an intro message that I'm calling, God is Faithful and Will Win Every Victory. That's, that's, the day, that's the title of today's message, God is Faithful and He Wins the Victory. And uh, before we get maybe to that bit of the message, I just want to give you maybe some, some details about the book of Daniel as we head into it, and I hope that you'll begin to read it this week. Like, just open it up. Start with chapter one. Read the first chapter. Read two chapters. Heck, go crazy and read the whole thing. It takes about 30 minutes, you know? And that's if you're a slow reader like me. And I'm a, I'm, this is the kind of slow reader I am. I'm the person who mouths out every word as I read it, you know? That takes longer, but I'm, it goes deeper. Okay. Uh, I would encourage you to read it, but here, here's a few things about Daniel. Uh, number one, Daniel can be divided into two parts stylistically. It's really kind of a strange book. So the front end of Daniel is going to be straight up narrative. It's like story time. And by the way, the stories in the front end of Daniel, they're like the most famous stories in the whole Bible. But it's just, it's six chapters of stories and each chapter is kind of like a self-contained story. And they're the kinds of stories that you could read your children and they would immediately get. It's, it's one of the very cool features about Daniel. You can be a full grown adult who's read the Bible their whole lives and read these stories and it'll say something to you. Or you could be a little kid who can't even read yet and you just read it to the kid and immediately they get what's happening in it and they're understanding what's going on. So the first six chapters of Daniel, narrative, like extremely narrative and story-driven. But then in chapter seven to the very end, it takes this hard left-hand turn. I was trying to decide which way we were going to go. It takes a hard left-hand turn, and then it, it quits being narrative in some ways, and it becomes apocalyptic. Somebody say the word apocalyptic. Apocalypse just means like revealing. Everybody hears the word apocalypse, and you think doom. Uh, not necessarily in the Bible. In the, in the Bible, apocalypse means like a moment of revealing. And so the last chapters of Daniel, they're all apocalyptic visions and they're very, very similar to the book of Revelation. So there's this sense in which the end of Daniel is kind of like this Old Testament echo 
of what John is going to pick up on in the Isle of Patmos. And here's what's very interesting. Many of the themes are similar. So you have this Bible uh, book that inside of the book, it's stylistically like two things, narrative and apocalypse, narrative and apocalypse. And so uh, that's part of what's happening just as you pick up pick up the scripture this week and maybe start to read it. Uh, I do also want to make one more note here about Daniel, just as, as we receive it. Like if you open up your Bible this week and read it, you're going to read it and, and most likely you're going to read that in English. Uh, there's, a, there's a few of us here in the vineyard who, who might read, read that uh, this week in Spanish, but either way, most of us in the room are going to read it in English, but Daniel's very strange, especially in the Old Testament. It was actually written in two different languages. So Daniel is written in Hebrew, which would come as no surprise. I mean, these are the people of Israel. These are the Hebrews. Uh, They would write things in their own language. But this weird thing happens in the very middle of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 2 to long about Daniel chapter 7, the language changes and it flips over to Aramaic. And then before it's over, it switches back to Hebrew. So it goes Hebrew, Aramaic, Hebrew. And if you read some of the scholarship on this, one of the things you'll discover is that the scholars can't really decide what all that's about. There's a lot of internal fighting, but one of the things I think it's about is uh, it's in some ways, it's in some ways indicative of a book that was written in exile. All right. So uh, Daniel, part of the backdrop of Daniel is that the people of God have been subsumed by the Babylonians and the Persians. And so they're no longer, they're no longer the masters of their own domain. They have, they have overlords, you know? And so there's this sense in which the dichotomy of language is only highlighting that these are people who are not, not necessarily uh, living within their own domains, but they're encountering this other culture. And Aramaic would have been like the, culture, the cultural language of commerce. And, and so it's, it's made its way into the book. And maybe you and I wouldn't read that on the surface. You'd have no way of knowing that. But it only highlights some of the things that we will pick up even in our translations, which, are, which is this, that this is a people who have, been, who have been taken from their homes and thrust into a place they didn't ask to go. Does that make sense? Which is one of the big overarching themes. And here's what I want to do this morning. Mostly, I just want to give you some of the big themes in Daniel. And if you've read the book at all, you you probably already know some of these themes. And I'm going to give you several. I should have counted them so I could tell you right now, but I didn't. So number one, we'll count as we go. How about that? (laughs) Themes in Daniel. Uh, Number one, courage. Courage. Um, the book of Daniel has this theme running inside of it, and it could be best described as courage. Over and over uh, in the text, Daniel and his friends, uh, anybody remember Daniel's friends? Shadrach, come on, Meshach, and Abednego. Why do, why do we never name our children these things? Why is it always Matthew, Luke, and John, you know? I, I want to meet an Abednego. You know, and if, if, you know, if I know anything about the vineyard, there's, there's probably a mom here who's got a baby in the oven right now. I just want to suggest, I want to suggest a Bendigo. But back to courage. One of the themes in Daniel is this, Daniel and his friends over and over and over demonstrate courage. Daniel and his friends 
They, they just, they exude courage. Uh, think about Daniel and the lion's den, you know? Or, or when Daniel offers to be of service to the king. You remember that moment? Maybe you don't, but we're going to see it here in a few weeks. The moment when Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I've had a dream. And he comes to his advisors, his sorcerers, and his wise men. And he says, hey, I've had, a, I've had a dream and I want you to interpret it. And they're like, well, just tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. He goes, no, 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 no. We're not playing that game. The game is this. You tell me the dream and you interpret it, right? And they're like, well, we can't do this. And finally, the word gets to Daniel and Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says to him, I will tell you the dream and I will interpret it because there's a God in heaven who's a revealer of mysteries. How many of you know it takes cojones <laughs> to be the guy who's not Babylonian and who's not Persian to go to the guy who's the most powerful man on the planet and say, I will play that game. And how many of you know what the price for getting that game wrong is? I'll give you an idea. <laughs> Courage over and over again. Daniel in the lion's den, when he offers to interpret the dream, he steps forward over and over again. There's this moment when, when the king's like, you know what? I built this new statue and I need everybody to worship it, you know? And everybody's like, okay. But, but Daniel and his friends are like, no, we, we will not worship. We will not worship this statue. Like we will, we, we, that's just not who we are. Like we'll help you in some other ways, but in this way we will contrast. And so they say no. And the king's like, great, into the fiery furnace with you. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He throws three in, but in a moment they look in and they, how many do they see? There's four, right? Like there's just courage, courage. And so part of, part of what we see Part of what we see in the book of Daniel is this. What does it mean to live faithfully to God? What does it mean to live faithfully to God? Well, here's part of what Daniel says. It takes courage to live faithfully to God. Like actually being faithful to God will not be easy at times. It will be difficult. It requires courage. In fact, one of the things that is demonstrated over and over again, not just in the book of Daniel, but in the Bible is this, that the people of God are courageous. And I want to say one more thing about that. It doesn't mean lacking fear. I'm positive Shadrach, Meshach, and Abendo, Abednego were shaking in their boots when they went into the fiery furnace. But, they, but, the, 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 but there was something within them. There was a resolve that was deeper and it was a commitment to God that, that showed itself with great courage. It's not the absence of fear, but it's to be the sort of person who isn't frozen by fear and anxiety and moves forward to the things that are right no matter what. Uh, the other thing I wanna say about this is, is this. Um, courage, courage, especially in the book of Daniel is not brash bravado or feigning a persecution complex. <laughs> uh, how many of you know that a lot of times uh, today, uh, we might mistake courage with a certain like bravado that shows up on the internet, you know? Or, or maybe it's the, it's the persecution complex that sometimes grips people, you know? I'm just, it's just me and, you know, everyone else is forsaken me. And, and I, I, want to I want us to see, uh, even this morning, that the courage that Daniel and his friends demonstrate, it's, it's something other. It's something other. Okay, themes. Number two, uh, excellence. Excellence. Uh, Daniel and his friends are often shown to be the most excellent. 
Uh, one of the things you pick up on the text is uh, they're smart. Uh, the other thing you pick up on in the text is they are fit. Uh, the, maybe the third and fourth things that you pick up on in the text is they hear from God, they are courageous, they're righteous. And here's the thing that comes through over and over, especially with Daniel, he doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. And when I was reading through the text again this week, one of the things I was struck with was how righteous Daniel is. And it's rooted in mostly he does not lie. And, and the advisors and the wise men and the magicians that are around Nebuchadnezzar or whoever is king, they're always scheming. They're always lying. They're always conniving. Is that a word? Conniving. I don't, I don't, I've never even said that word before. Yeah, there's something else. But Daniel, Daniel and his friends... They're excellent. And like, there's something about their whole life that is excellent. The way that they go about their business. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, their, their, uh, their peers in the king's court are jealous and they're scandalous and they're plotting. Um, and there's a note all the way through the text uh, in Daniel that has to do with excellence. Uh, in, in, many way, in many ways, Daniel's story echoes uh, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. There's, there's some kind of like a harmonic, you know, they, they go together. You could sing those two parts. You could sing those two parts together. And it actually has something to do with excellence. And, and so I might say something like this to the church this morning. What does it mean to live faithfully in a pagan and pluralistic world? Well, Daniel would say this, it has something to do with excellence. And here's what I would like to say to the church this morning. And we'll We'll pick it up again later. Uh, I can think of no other place where excellence should be on display from the people of God. I can think of no other place more than our jobs. Like, like there's, a, there's a sense in which so much of what's happening in Daniel, it's happening in the sphere of his job. You know, and you wouldn't maybe notice it that way. You might not initially put the word vocation on Daniel, but it's clearly showing up in this space of where he's expected to do a certain kind of work. And he shows up over and over again as the best guy, as the best guy. And so I would just like to say, what does it mean to live faithfully in a pluralistic world? Well, here's the deal, church. We got to be excellent. Where? Uh, everywhere, but especially at work. Like kicking butt and taking names. You want to receive that tomorrow morning? Be the best. Be the best. Okay, themes. Honor. This is a theme in Daniel. It's a tough one. Uh, keeps showing up over and over in the text. Has a lot to do with honor. And I also want to say that honor is, is almost a worthless, world in the, a worthless word in the charismatic world these days. But in Daniel, we see real demonstrations of honor. Uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel, all, Daniel always displays honor, but, but the honor that Daniel displays always goes to God first. It's actually very important. You know, it's not just that Daniel is able to honor someone who's in leadership above him, but it's that Daniel always, always first and most gives God honor. And then he's able to give honor to the men that he, that he serves under, even if there are fundamental differences in their beliefs and lifestyle. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about this week is this. We, we currently live in a moment of dishonor. Just, you know, just as a culture, just as a culture, people regularly dishonor one another and they regularly do it in public, mostly on the internet. Like 
Like, what is the internet? Here's, here's a sort of like cynical take on the internet. It's like a dishonor machine. You know, that's kind of one of the ways to understand it. Uh, it's, it's, it's become common practice to just dunk on people on the internet and basic honor and decorum have left the public sphere. Have you noticed that? Like anybody you disagree with, it's not just we have a disagreement, but it's like, you're a bad person. Like that's a bad person. Uh, honor today, I was thinking about this week, honor today is reserved for people that we agree with. Honor is reserved for people we agree with or, or for people who hold our theology uh, or, or especially here in America today, honor is reserved for people who vote like we do. Uh, honor is reserved for people who are as progressive as we are or as conservative as we are. But the moment you disagree or you contrast in any other way, boom, dishonor and scorn. And by the way, I would just want to say this to the church as well. By the way, disagreement is not the same as dishonor. Like, like if you could write something that wasn't a scripture on your bathroom mirror, I would want you to write this for like two years. Disagreement is not dishonor. Like we should just internalize that. Like we, like we, could, just, we could just disagree about something and maybe even about something big and we never have to move into dishonor. We don't, we don't have to do that. Agreement on the issues isn't needed in order to honor or to love. There's only one area where, where there can be no disagreement, especially among Christians, and it's this. It's that people are made in God's image, and they all deserve a modicum. They all deserve a, a measure of honor because God's goodness have been placed on. That's like the one thing we can't disagree about ever. Like no matter how much we disagree with someone on something else, the thing we always have to reserve as Christians is that people are made in God's likeness and so they're to be honored in some basic humane way. Okay, what are we on now? Is that three? See, I've already lost count. Four, I'm gonna call it four. I have no idea. I literally have no clue. Number four, themes in Daniel. Oh, obedience is the safest place. This shows up over and over again. Like, wh where's the safest place? Obedience. That's the safest place. Think about the lion's den or the fiery furnace. Uh, neither of those places are locations I'm hoping to go to on vacation. You know, when I look at the Airbnb, I've never typed it in fiery furnace. <laughs> Just, it's never come up, you know, and I've never, I've never searched for the lion's den to take the kids to. Mostly because, because they seem like the end, you know? It's like, I'm wanting a vacation to extend my life, not to end my life. And yet, in the end, in both stories and others that we're going to read, they end up being something different in the end. And so there's this theme in Daniel that has to do with obedience and faithfulness. And, and both are connected with people's actual actions and not just the words they speak. So if I could just say that to us, it's like, it's about actions and not just words. For Daniel's friends, for Daniel's friends, it was rooted in what they would not do. They would not worship an image. They would not, why? Because they're good Jewish boys and they know the 10 commandments and it's like right up front. You know, you'll have no other gods before me. Don't make graven images. They know this stuff, right? And they're like, bro, we're not doing this. Like we'll help you do the math in Babylon, but we won't 
do the idol worship thing in Babylon. We'll help you do the geometry and the economics in Babylon, but we will not let you force us into the other things. And so Daniel's friends, they're known by what they would not do. And then Daniel, he receives the lion's den precisely because of what he did do, right? Which, which is he continued to pray. An edict goes out and says, you can't pray to anybody except for like the king. And Daniel's praying to the God of Israel, just like he always did, like keeps his, keeps his normal, regular hours of prayer. And so in both cases, the text shows us there's a, that there's a kind of safety to living faithful to God. One note here though, it's not magic. It's not magic. Like being faithful to God Uh, In the text, it it delivers the friends from the fire and Daniel from the lion's den. But I also want to say this, that it's possible to be faithful to God and to feel the heat or the teeth of the lion. In fact, lots of people do. In fact, lots of people do. But even then, even then, the Bible would say there's a better path secured for those who remain faithful to God. There's a way in which both the fiery furnace and the lion's den, they prefigure the tomb of Jesus. Like when you're reading those texts, one of the things you got to kind of keep in mind is like the cross and the tomb, especially the lion's den. It's an Old Testament dark shadow of the den that Jesus would go into and the, and the, and the way in which it would be sealed up, Right? And so there's a, there's a chance in which, church, if you're faithful, maybe you're going to feel more heat than you wanted, and, and maybe you're going to get some teeth you didn't expect. But here's, here's what the story of Jesus would say. And by the way, the story of Jesus trumps Daniel's story, that even if you feel the fire unto death, and even if you get the lion's den and don't come out, you are held by a savior who has been through both and he will raise you up. That is the truth. And even then there is a safety that is reserved for faithfulness that comes no other way. Be faithful to God. It is the safest place. Uh, Right now we're living in a moment of maybe low faithfulness. People are becoming increasingly political and maneuvering. Uh, There's a sense in which people just want to go with the flow. But the book would say to us, be faithful. In fact, it brings us to the biggest two themes in the book. Is this five and six? See, I have a hamster brain. I've told you about this, right? Like there's multiple wheels and there's multiple hamsters in my mind at all times. So I can't count and preach. I literally can't. Uh, Here are the two biggest themes in the book of Daniel. Uh, Number one, living faithful in a pagan world. And number two, or number four and five. I don't know. Number next living faithful in a pagan world and God is in control and he'll have the final victory. Those are the two biggest themes in Daniel. Uh, Daniel was faithful. His friends were faithful. And by the way, none of them were living in a, in a culture that was hospital, hospitable to their beliefs or basic understanding of their own cultural history. They were living in a culture that was in many ways hostile. Uh, they were POWs, in a manner of speaking, Uh, they were conscripted. How many of you know they didn't apply for the job of being Nebuchadnezzar's dudes? There was no application. They didn't get interviewed. They were conscripted against their will. 
uh, their country and their land and their culture were overrun by another country. And when they were brought into Babylon, everything that they were being educated in was meant to delete their Jewishness from them, delete their culture from them, delete their religious understanding, delete, 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 right? Customs were different. Values were different. Uh, The Babylonians looked at the Hebrews and they looked at their God and they looked at their way they worshiped. And here's, here's basically their posture. We don't care. Like we literally don't care. Uh, They took Daniel to have him re-educated. He was human capital. And yet somehow he was able to live faithful in a faithless world. It's one of the biggest themes in the book. You can live faithful in a faithless world. Why? Because, Because God is in control and he'll have the final victory because of that final theme that's in the book. Uh, Israel had been overrun. Foreign powers are steering the ship. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man. Yet, Yet God is the one who is pulling the levers of history. I want to read just one scripture this morning. Women, can we put up Daniel chapter two? I've already kind of quoted it. There's this moment. There's this moment when Nebuchadnezzar does the whole, like, you got to tell me the dream and then interpret it. And here's, here's Daniel's response. Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. 28, but there is a God in heaven. See, it's that overarching theme. Daniel is faithful in a faithless society. And then the theme that's above that is that even, even above the highest, most powerful man in the world, what? There's a God in heaven. Oh, hey, got some news for you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're not the one pulling the levers of history. There's a God in heaven who reveals the secrets and he has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen. These are the themes. He has a troubling dream. And Daniel's able to answer because he gets, he gets word from God. Kings, they throw people in the fire in the book of Daniel. But also in the book of Daniel, there's somebody in the fire with the man. And that is God himself. Uh, the, the kings throw folks in the lion's den. But those people walk out because, because faithfulness is the safest place and because there is a God in heaven who has power that the king does not have. And he is in control. So even when things are turbulent, there is a Lord of history. And I want to say this just to land the ship today. Uh, this is all very, very current. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this is all very current. Uh, here's why. Because America is a pluralistic society. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we, all, we don't all believe the same thing in our country. Here's the other part. We're not going to believe the same thing. Whatever you think is happening right now with the pluralism in America, the many ideas or the many ways to organize life, it's not going to unify. It's going to become more pluralistic. It's going to continue to dissolve. Uh, if, you, if you're wondering, are there gonna, is there going to be a time when, when, when America comes back to being like a nation of one story? No, it's not going to happen. We're going to continue to be a people of many, many stories. We don't share the same story. Uh, the truth is we probably never did. You know, if you read any history, the truth is we were never a country of one story. But here's the thing, 
Here's the thing that's very current for us. After the Vietnam War, a certain form of America, well, it came apart at the seams. Like if you just look at recent history, you know, there's a, there's a certain form of America that just sort of like dissolved at the seams after the Vietnam War and a kind of disillusionment settled in. And if you mix that with what we might call global Western postmodernism, you get a cultural storm that is, that is very harmonic with that of Daniel's day. And when I talk about global Western postmodernism, uh, that means a lot of things, but let me just, let me say it this way for you. What that mostly means is there's not one accepted story. There's not a meta narrative that we all agree on. Uh, how, many, how many of you in the last five years have heard people say more and more, uh, well, that's your truth? These kinds of things. That's your truth. Or how many of you have heard people maybe type out on the internet, uh, you should live what? Your truth. Or, or maybe you share something and someone might, might look at you and go, oh, that's really good. What? For you. Right? Uh, all, of this, all of this are cultural signs that we're living in a moment where there is no, there is no agreed upon story. Uh, there's no agreed upon story about God. There's no agreed upon story about how you would live your life, how you should organize your family. There's not an agreed upon story about what is right and what is wrong. And here's the other part, church. It's not going to come together in our lifetimes. We're going to have to learn how to be faithful in a faithless moment. We will have to learn how to be people of a story in a moment when there is no story. We're going to have to hang on to our gospel when there is no gospel. We're going to have to hang on to the text when literally every shred of text is being pulled apart. This is where we're at. A while back, absolute power rested in a king or queen. And we've done away with that. And now we live in a moment where the lack of absolutes is the absolute. If you don't think so, just suggest that there are truths that are not fundamentally relative and you will get immediate pushback. What is that? It's the lack of a controlling narrative. And why am I bringing this up? Well, I'm bringing this up because we need, we need some, of that, some of that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego muscle memory to be put into our spiritual DNA that we might live faithfully in a faithless world. And by the way, uh, Christianity is becoming less and less a part of the cultural story that most folks live in. In many ways, in many ways in the future, and I think right now, in many ways being a Christian means living as an exiled person. Uh, by the way, in the future, it's only going to become more true. It's only going to become more true. And it's going to be this way for a good moment. Uh, we're moving into an era where living as a Christian will be seen in one of three distinct ways. Uh, number one, people will be curious. Uh, and by curious, I don't mean like, oh, tell me more. I mean like, that's weird and boring. Like, why would you be a Christian? That's so weird and it's so boring. Like, why would, like, it's more fun not to be. So like, number one, people are going to increasingly look at Christians who are faithful to the text and faithful to Jesus. And they're gonna be like, what a weird, crazy thing to do. Why would you do that? Uh, number two, 
Number two, people are going to begin to look at Christians and, and faith in general, not just Christians, but faith as a problem. Uh, some people right now are formulating that religion is not simply the opiate of the masses. Instead, it's a problem. And when, and when you think of this, you need to think of people like Sam Harris. Uh, I don't know if anybody in the room aware of like philosopher, neuroscience guy, Sam Harris. If you're not, you should be. Sam, Sam's basic argument is not that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's that religion, Christianity, and all the other ones, it's the problem. And it's holding us back. Uh, here's, what's, here's what's good, I think. I think people like Sam Harris are losing their influence, though. And here's why. Because number three is beginning to take over. As we live faithful to God, people are going to look at us not only with curiosity, but, but Christianity in many ways is just going to be seen as one choice among many. And here's why. Because we're seeing the rise in what you might call neo-paganism. By the way, neo-paganism is everywhere in our culture right now. Everywhere. I encounter it as a pastor so often it would make your head spin. And it literally started showing up in my pastoral work here in Campbellsville about four years ago. About four years ago. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about things like tarot cards are back in the mainstream. Like people who think they're Christians are messing around with, with neo-pagan practices like tarot cards and astrology. Hallucinogenics are back in the mainstream. Magic. Magic, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about magic, the game, or whatever that was, the card thing. I'm talking about magic. Like, people are interested in magic. They're interested in crystals. Like, hold a crystal and a good intention, and your day will go better. People are, people are more and more interested in these neo-pagan practices. And why? Because it's about your truth. And at the same time, the stories that we've been told, the stories that we've been told, especially as they relate to science and everything that came from the modern world, people are beginning to wake up into in the realities in which they don't always work. And they're looking for another story that connects them to transcendence. And so people are open to astral projection and tarot cards and astrology and crystals and hallucinogenics in an increasingly, just a massive manner, maybe even some people in this room. And, and part of what that is doing is it is dissolving, it is dissolving our idea that, that Christianity is the center or the base. And so what it's going to require from the church is Daniel courage and Daniel faithfulness to live, honoring to God first and most to have, have Jesus be our North star because the world in which we inhabit, it's not one that your parents grew up in at all. And I just want to say this morning, uh, this is not scary either. This is a good time to be a Christian. Good time to be a Christian. Uh, here's why. When you read the Old Testament, when you read Daniel, but when you read the Old Testament at all, in the moments where the people of God were surrounded by everything I've been talking about. By the way, all of those cultures were pagan. All of those cultures believed in certain forms of magic and they were looking for transcendence. Like that's what human beings do. We need transcendence. We need, like we need it. But in the Old Testament in particular, every time the people of God were baptized into these kinds of cultures, the power of God was with them. Like the power of God. Like the people of God had a cloud by day and a fire by night 
when they were coming out of pagan Egypt. Like the people of God were surrounded by the miracles and by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit when they were in a culture that was utterly foreign to them. It is good to be a people in exile. It is good to be a people in exile. It is good. It is good. This is not something that is scary. This is a moment for us to take this text and go, this is a word for us. This is a word for us. And what is the word? To learn how to trust God. That is the word. That is it. We are going to learn in the next 11 weeks, brand new ways to trust God, to trust God. And here's what it means. It means, it means this. It means, Holy Spirit, would you guide me into the ways of Jesus? Would you guide me into the ways of Jesus? Okay, we've stirred up enough trouble. Everybody good? I had too many words this morning. High five to everybody. High five. You did great. If you're on the worship team, come on up this morning. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.